Today's Tin House News is about their most recent release, a slim volume by the late, great Catherine Dunn, most famous for her novel Geek Love, called On Cussing. Readers of Catherine Dunn won't be surprised that f*** the f***ity f***ing f***er was her father's favorite sentence, or that as a young girl she heard it as a kind of profane poem or secret song. And in On Cussing, Dunn not only sketches a brief history of swear words and creates a field guide to their types and usages, but she also explores their physiology, the physical impact on the reader or listener, and makes an argument for how and when to cuss in one's writing and in one's life with maximum effect. On Cussing is available now at tinhouse.com with an introduction by filmmaker Gus Van Sant, and proceeds will benefit the Catherine Dunn Scholarship at Pacific University's MFA program. Next up is Christine Scutt. We will be adding Scutt's reading of a remarkable excerpt from Elizabeth Hardwick's book on Herman Melville to the bonus audio archive on Patreon. And there you can check out all the other benefits of becoming a supporter of the show. Everything from featured new Tin House releases like Morgan Parker's Magical Negro, two passes for the lectures and seminars at the upcoming Tin House Summer Writers Workshop, to becoming an early Tin House reader, receiving 12 galleys of their books over the course of a year, well before they are available to the general public. You can check this all out and more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. Stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the writer Christine Scutt. Scutt is the author of two short story collections and three novels. Her debut collection, Nightwork, was chosen as the best book of 1996 for the Times Literary Supplement by the poet John Ashbery, who described it as pared down but rich, dense, fevered, exactly right, and even eerily beautiful. It turned out to be no coincidence that it would be one of America's leading poets who would pick Scutt's debut book of prose as the best book of the year, as Scutt has gone on to become one of the great practitioners of the poetics of the sentence. Christine Scutt earned an MFA in creative writing from Columbia, studied at Barnard with the novelist and critic Elizabeth Hardwick, and ultimately did a deep dive into the world of Gordon Lish's 
writing pedagogy, with Scott as one of the early students and Lish as Scott's editor for her debut night work at Knopf. Christine Scott taught English and creative writing for 20 years at the Nightingale Bamford School for Girls, has taught undergraduate writing at Columbia, Sarah Lawrence, Amherst, Syracuse, and the Sewanee Writers Conference, and is a consulting editor at Diane Williams' literary annual, Noon. Christine Scott's debut novel, Florida, was a finalist for the National Book Award, and her second novel, All Souls, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction. She has won multiple O. Henry Prizes, a Pushcart Prize, and a fellowship from the Guggenheim Foundation, and we're lucky to have her here today to talk about her newest collection of stories, Pure Hollywood and Other Stories, just out in paperback from Grove Press. Michael Silverblatt says of Christine Scott that she writes the most singular and perverse sentences of anyone working today. The Guardian warns that wherever your literary comfort zone is, the chances are that Christine Scott is outside it. Publishers Weekly says of Pure Hollywood, Nobody writes like Scott, and her latest collection is the perfect entry point for readers new to her work. In each of the collection's 11 stories, Scott gives readers dissipated women staggering to the brink of sanity, desperate men with foggy intentions, and an eerie atmosphere that radiates menace, sexuality, and murder. Scott is always in control in this work by an experimental American writer of unparalleled style. The BBC says, Think Gatsby with a twist of Didion. Otessa Moshveg heralds pure Hollywood as pure gold. And Claire Vewakin says, Christine Scott is easily among the liveliest stylists of our time. But these 11 stories prove we ain't seen nothing yet. Each is a wonder, pickled in her crystalline idiom and cured under her brutal, astonishing wit. Welcome to Between the Covers, Christine Scott. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So before we talk about pure Hollywood and the way it both continues and departs from the work that comes before it, I was hoping maybe we could start with the origin story of you as a writer, because I think it would be uh, of interest to aspiring writers and also possibly even inspirational in that regard. Um, Because one of the notable things about your history is that you studied writing seriously in your 20s. And yet your first book didn't come out until your late 40s. Yet once that happened, from the get-go, from the Mm -hmm. late 40s on, you were in the conversation for the Pulitzer, the National Book Award, winning O. Henry Prizes. But during those two decades prior to you publishing Nightwork, you were a writer, and and things weren't necessarily coming together. (laughs) Uh, So I was hoping maybe you could talk about your days at at Columbia and Barnard um, with Hardwick and what your writing was like before you sort of figured it out, maybe how you look back on those um, decades pre-night work, um, working hard at writing and, and not having things manifest? Um, sure. I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, I went to Columbia in my late 20s, and I studied uh, with Richard Yates for the first semester, and that was fine. Uh, very good. He's a wonderful story writer, of course. And um, 
In any event, what what came out of all of my work at Columbia was that I could I could then I wanted to be a poet, so I was very interested in language and the way sentences are made and sound, all of that, and I could write a good sentence. I had. Uh, spent, before I uh, applied to the schools, some time imitating people who are are sentence uh, uh, magicians. Uh, John Updike uh, is is still quite remarkable in in those ways, and uh, Harold Brodke and Renata Adler. Um, And I also loved Elizabeth Hardwick at the time, and she was teaching at Barnard, so I went across the street, and I studied with her, and that was extraordinarily rewarding. And uh, I wrote short things for her, and uh, in in any event, the the long and the short of it is, is that while you can write a very, very good sentence, you don't necessarily know how to put them all together to tell a good story, and that was my problem. I would start out in a, a with a very strong in, in a strong way, and um, and then the the story would sort of dribble away. I was trying to write Anne Beattie stories; that was a disaster. Um, in any event, uh, I I it, when I left Columbia, my last meeting, I remember there was a woman who. Um, I, Hannah Green, um, who, who said to me uh, very much what I'm saying now is <clears throat> you can write very well, wonderful sentences and so forth, but it may take you 20 years to figure out how to tell a story. And in fact, that was true. And I'm not sure I would even know how to tell a story if I hadn't, uh, if I hadn't met um, Gordon and studied with him. In any event, in the meantime... Because I've, I've st- since, in, in teaching in different places, uh, met other um, people whose story is very much like mine. That is, they did well in, in school and in their MFA programs, and they left, and they still couldn't quite get something to work. Um, th- that was my case. Uh, during the time I was married and then um, after I was married, I, I kept on writing and uh, failing, uh, but I did write, and I do think you get better. At, at, at maybe it's just a sentence, but you do get better. So in any event, um, after I was teaching, I had two boys, and by the time I, I met Gordon, um, I had been through enough experiences, not all of them happy, to figure that um, no matter what happened in his workshop or what he said, and he could be very brutal, I I wasn't afraid yeah. that you could say anything. And um, I, But all that work on the sentence actually paid off, and I've met for the first time somebody who felt that was really all you needed was a sentence. Nobody had told me that, and... Um, and he made the whole process very, very easy, um, just by following his his very simple instructions, um, which were once you land on a sentence that is 
going to cost you something and that is interesting to you, your only obligation is to look at it long and hard and to find out how you're going to, what term in that sentence is the strongest and how you can capitalize on it. Um, take it up and, and turn it around. In any event, it was a very liberating, wonderful time in my 40s, but it had, when I was told in my late 20s it would take me 20 years, uh, that that's devastating news because at 20, 20 years seems a long time. Well, before we sort of unpack the what you learned from Lish, yes. when you were uh, under Hardwick, yes. you did write a novel. Yes. And she told you you should join the large club of writers whose first novels get put away in a buried in a desk drawer. Yes. Um, what was that novel like? And have you ever looked at it again? I've never looked at it again, but um, it's very much a lot of the same stories uh far more autobiographically relayed uh that I took up when I studied with Lish. I, I do think a lot of uh, our material um it, it, we don't forget it. It comes back and it comes back in remarkable forms. Um, it took me a while to see that in night work my very first story was 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 a story that I had been trying to write at Columbia um, some 20 years before. So that, um, that was interesting to me. You just, you, you take up the same material, but by then you know how to perhaps manipulate it in a way that's really going to suit. And, um, that's, that's, that's what happened. Uh, you've also in other interviews talked about an abusive relationship you were in just after you got divorced Yes, as being sort of a a turning point for you in your writing life. Yes. When he took out your work and started mocking it. Yes. Uh, what about that experience <laughs> um, shifted things for you? Yeah. Those are very, very, very difficult times. This was a, a person who um, was verbally abusive, uh, although he certainly had the capacity to be physically abusive. And he uh, did take my work out um, one evening and started to read it and not read it too much aloud, though, and then a little bit to himself and make fun of it. And I I thought then, of all the things that had been said to me, and all of them I believed, uh, stupidity and so forth, I didn't believe he believed what he was saying, actually. I just, for some perverse reason, I didn't believe it. And... It was comforting to me that at least I still held on to that, that I thought, no, I don't think it's so bad, and I don't think you think it's so bad. Um, But certainly um, living with someone like that, you you either – well, they're either going to kill you or or you're you're going to kill them in some way. Hmm. So that was my – that was my experience. It, initially, when he took it out of the drawer, of course, you're terrified. Uh, but anyway, that that worked out well. Uh-huh. Mm. Well, when you were when you were living in Portland a couple years ago, yes. teaching um, as part of the Tin House Portland State mm-hmm. um, 
collaboration. You were telling me about the unique proposal that Gordon Lish made to you around your apartment. Mm-hmm. And I would love it if you would just share that yes. and maybe a little bit of your, your remembrances of those early days. Yes. So what, what did Lish, yes. what did yes. Lish propose to you when you started, um, flirting with the possibility of studying with him. Well, it was very hard. I, 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 I didn't... Um, my meeting him was somewhat serendipitous, in, as, it, as it turned out. Um, I'd been reading stories and, what, and, and discovering that the man behind the stories was someone named Gordon Lish, and I then had tea with a woman who was actually studying with him and whose stories I liked, and um, but to, to find him or to figure out how you were going to get into these things, uh, I didn't understand how any of that worked. Not that I was so bold as to really do a lot of prying. And a friend of mine one day had sent stories to Gordon, and he liked them, and he wanted to meet her. And she told me about this, and I was very excited for her. And um, in the in the middle of the meeting, she 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 left him to make a call to me and to say he was crazy, and he wanted to have uh, his classes in her apartment, and she let no one in her apartment, and so I was very excited, and I said, "Well, send him to me," um, because I happened to be in the right in the neighborhood that was near to his apartment, as was she, so. He did. He came over right away, and it's one of those meetings you don't forget, aside from the fact that he has a wonderful costume, he's got a cowboy hat and a, one of the cowboy coats, and all in khaki, and he looked like a writer. <laughs> His white hair and a kind of wildness and a ruddy complexion, and he came in very forcefully and looked around, and sat down, want to know my background and everything else, dismissed Columbia entirely. I remember one of the things I really, uh, that um, moved me, or not moved me, but I, I was I was I was done for. Was nobody had ever really called me Scut by my last name, just as you would a writer, and 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 knew how to say my name. Moreover, and so he said, uh, Scut, I'm going to make a proposal because his his classes were very expensive. Um, if people paid, no one ever. <laughs> asked anybody else, although he made a, a show of it sometimes. But um, I'd already decided I certainly was never going to spend a penny on learning how to write. That I'd already done in graduate school, and, and that was enough. But fortunately, he said, I'll, I'll, here's the deal. You let me have my classes in your apartment, both the sort of a beginning class and then the master class or whatever he was calling them, um, they were on, I think it was a Tuesday and a Thursday, and these classes ran for six hours. He said, I'll, I'll let you attend them if I can have them here, and you get the whole thing for free. So I did think that was a great deal, and it was a great deal. It was so exciting. My apartment's very, very, very tiny, well under a 1,000 square feet, and and. Uh, we had a lot of people in the in the opening classes. Sometimes twenty five people would come, and they would be down the hallway and in the kitchen. Lots of people 
ultimately elected to stay in the kitchen on the floor or stay on the floor in the hallway simply because I think Gordon was a very scary person. You never knew what he was going to say and what he was going to say about you and how you were going to be exposed. So the classes got smaller over the course Mm. of the term until they were finally manageable, but they they were just thrilling. It, it was as thrilling to be in the class that where people were in 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 their work was in a rougher condition as it was to be in the class that um, was um, accomplished. Uh, by which I mean, you know, Amy Hempel and Mark Richard and people and those people really they only made appearances, but they would read or they would contribute. It was. Well, nobody contributed, I should say. Only Gordon talked. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and we just hoped that if we were – when we were asked to read, we hoped to get beyond the first sentence. And um, that was always an ambition. In any event, I, I loved his aesthetics. I had been living that way most of my life, so I had no trouble and um, was extraordinarily happy. In the classes, you must have been if if you're not only hosting six or seven or eight hour long class marathons, yes. attend, attending those marathons, yes, uh, but then being so inspired to write until four in the morning after the oh yes. after the marathons oh, yes. were over. Oh yes, yeah. absolutely. It was very thrilling. Um, it was. It was. It was thrilling. That's all. You read, and um, and he would and he would take things apart or say what was working. And sometimes, if you'd read something and you knew it was good, he would go back to you again and again and again in the evening and say, "Read that again. Oh, wow. Save us." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yes. No. It's very dramatic in the way that you that that you were when you were first embarking on this, talking about the value of your work and holding it up uh, like a chalice. And, and he always went back to Araby. And um, he he spoke of it as a, a really, your life depends on it. Uh, and, and not to be playing games and not to be silly. Uh, anyway, I found everything he said uh, on writing on the mark, inspiring, um, provocative, all the things you would, would hope a, a teacher would be. And, um, and he just made such smart moves. He remembered your text, and he'd have you go back, and then he'd pick over a word. It was, it was uh, for someone who'd been proceeding at a very slow pace as I had, and then a sentence-by-sentence kind of level. Uh, even then, it was um, what I'd been waiting to hear, I think, most of my life. Hmm. Uh, you, Yes, it was wonderful. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Christine Scott about her latest story collection, Pure Hollywood. So there's a little mystery or paradox in the way you're describing things that I mm-hmm. want to unpack a, a little mm-hmm. bit. And that is that in the first part of your career, mm-hmm. you say you were already confident about your sentences, mm-hmm. but all the feedback is you're getting you're getting is you haven't figured out how, how to write a story, mm-hmm. and yet 
you figure out how to write a story by finding a teacher who tells you you only need to focus on your sentences. Right. So, which seems like a paradox. Yes. So, it is. I'm I'm going to read something you once said about Lish and then okay. a little bit more. Okay. And then I want to ask you some questions about this. Okay. So, you once said this about Lish. I value no one's opinion more than Gordon's when it comes to assessment of fiction, and while in his class I took notes, I have profited from reading again. I tried to live by many of his phrases. Stay open for business. Be Emersonian. Say what no one else has the courage to say, and you will be embraced. Reveal what you would keep secret. You will stay awake when writing such a story. You will also write very, very carefully with so much at stake. Each sentence is extruded from the previous sentence. Look behind you when writing, not ahead. Your obligation is to know your objects and to steadily, inexorably darken and deepen them. So I was hoping we could unpack this idea of the next sentence being extruded from the previous, that to figure out where to go next involves a counterintuitive move of looking back instead of forward. Mm. So like, when Diane Williams was here and she was holding forth Gary Lutz's essay, mm -hmm. the sentence is a lonely place is perhaps the best description of Lish's language worldview mm -hmm. and also of this move in particular. Mm -hmm. And while Lutz talks about the sentences of many writers from Barry Hanna to Sam Lipsight, you're, you're sort of the star of this essay mm. and his most recent one, also the poetry of the paragraph. And he spends the most time examining and revealing the mechanics of your sentences. And he describes this Lishian technique of looking backward, which I think Lish called consecution mm. uh, as a re and this is Lutz's words, a recursive procedure by which one word pursues itself into its successor by discharging something from deep within itself into what follows the discharge can take many forms and often produces startling outcomes and then he takes a sentence where you use the surprising word tallowy by listening to what comes before in the sentence. And he, the sentence is, here is the house at night, lit up tall and tallowy. And Lutz claims you would have never arrived at this word tallowy without looking back in the sentence. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about consecution. Uh, on the one hand, it seems conceptually simple. But even when I talk about it with Diane Williams or I read the Gary Lutz article, there's still something a little bit mystifying about it. And maybe uh, you could talk about it in your own words. And if you teach it, how you go about teaching it. G Gary's description, I think, is, is, is very fancy. And I, I don't understand it exactly the way he's, he's expressed it. Um, in terms of tallowy or, or something, it was just a matter of sound. I, I thought it, the, the house looked waxy and white, and I was focused in my heart on on that, that it looked candle-like. And I think I picked tallow, I certainly maybe for the T's and other sounds, but that's uh, uh, when it comes down to the sounds or the particular words, a lot of it has to do, I think, with just simple... Um, you know, literary you know, tricks. I mean, it's alliterative, or it's it has some quality, some sound that it's always for me. It's always a sound that that, that I find um, 
mimics or mirrors what's sort of going on. Uh, the attitude of the character or the the sourness of the scene or if I want to flatten it. So I'm really more or less proceeding on sound. But what uh, this this idea of consecution or looking back, what it, what it relieved me of was you may arrive at your glorious sentence, the sentence you think this is the one that's going to start the story any number of ways. But once you've arrived at it, um, and this was the case for me as a, a, uh, an MFA student uh, and, and even when I was working in the dark all those years, um, once I had that sentence, I was looking to think forward and thinking, now, now where am I going to go? Because my real pleasure is, I think, in the it, it's just in the composition. Is in well, there are lots of pleasures, but I really love just playing with words, and and seeing if there's some new way of of opening uh, uh, the sentence or that I really enjoy doing that, and but found and have found often once I've finished that I'm at a loss. How can I sustain that um, and still tell a story? Um, and where am I going to go to do that because I'm still looking forward? Well, with Gordon, it, it was to look back at the sentence. This is how I took his instruction. I think we all of us took away different uh, lessons. Um, I simply looked for the term that was hottest, by, by which I mean the one that was, was had the most uh, prickly opportunity. And then I decided if I was going to sustain it, take that term and keep it up and high, or if I might dampen it. In any event, it gave me something to think about, a way to go, and I'd look long and hard at that sentence and figure out. There's a story that starts... Um, I once saw a man hook a walking stick around a woman's neck. And um, that's all I had. And that's a very, very uh, dramatic, uh, short kind of sentence. It has a lot of the Ks in it. It has those sounds. And um, I looked at that for days, really, thinking... I don't want to go on with the hook. I don't want to go on with the man. I don't want to elaborate on the neck. Um, in fact, if I did do that, I think I would still be floating. Uh, the, the story would have this kind of uh, nightmarishy thing, and but nothing else. So thinking about that and thinking about that, but just looking at that sentence as opposed to I had still no idea what kind, what story I was telling. I just had this vision, this image, and um, anyway, around the third day, I suddenly decided I'm just going to go flat and give myself feet and say where this is and come down in terms of the language. This was da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then I, in that way, I could still sustain a certain um, grave quality, uh, seriousness, 
but I wasn't in that uh, hot place anymore. I'd pulled away from it to give us a little background, and now I had other room to play. But I, in the past, I think I would have looked at that sentence, and I might have proceeded too quickly, just simply, okay, now I've got people fighting on the lawn, as opposed to really considering all the elements that I had already, just in those few words on the page, and what effect... It, the sentence had, and did I want to sustain it, or did I want to go and 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 dampen it some? So um, that's how I've used this this idea of of looking back, um, um, particularly when you're when you're when you're stuck for where you are. Obviously, once you you started this, there are moments when you just proceed at a lovely clip uh, for a bit. Um, but the simplicity of, of looking backward f- was is is such that I don't see why anybody would go any other way. Oh. Uh, so you, you pulled out some sentences that mm-hmm. are extruded from other sentences in, mm-hmm. in preparation for our conversation. Maybe maybe you could share uh, sure. one or two of them. Sure, uh, I I picked out uh, just to start. Um, she walked back to Stetson, enjoying the katak-katak of her shoes against the stone terrace, a sound both slutty and indulgent, right out of the movies. But wasn't Mimi right out of the movies? She was pretty enough, everyone said. Um, now, obviously, not everyone's going to hear what I hear, but in the opening sentence, what I wanted to do was just get a lot of sound. Uh, the sound of this girl uh, moving around in these shoes, that sort of kataki thing they they do with the little heel on the on the terrace and um, and and I also find those kinds of shoes and the sounds that they make are 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 loose sounds, a loose woman's sounds, so slutty, and so I got the use and then I got indulgent, and I got more use right out of the movies. But wasn't Mimi right out of the movie? So in the end part there, I'm still emphasizing this um, Hollywood theme. But um, this, but wasn't Mimi right out of the movies? That's more of the more of the. It's a nice way of saying that she's attractive, um, in in a in a movie uh, starlet way. Let's say. But then the sentence that follows this really has has. Very little interest in sound. It, it's 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 just sort of almost. It acts out that for me in my head the sort of slutty quality. She was pretty enough. Everyone said it's flat. It comes down. It's sort of throwaway. It's it was just it, my idea of um, changing the tone entirely and. Uh, uh, sort of the sentence embodies what I was trying to say by slutty and indulgent and a kind of casualness. And um, so that's how that littler sentence came out of the bigger sentence. Yeah. Um, it, again, I think in my – when I'm working a lot of the time, it simply has to do with the way – 
it, the way it sounds. Maybe this is a good time to hear one of the stories from Pure Hollywood. Yep. And I was hoping you would read Where You Live When You Need Me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where You Live When You Need Me. Out of nowhere, Ella, a mound with no known address, a swaying mystery, swollen hands, swollen feet. Did she sleep in the playground? Ella simply appeared. No phone but a tiny notepad, a tiny pencil. Where you live? When you need me? Like the Mr. Softy sound, Ella drew children to her under the shawl of her arms. Ella was a house in the park for an afternoon, an afternoon that often faded into later. No trouble. Any time. Where you live? When you need me? She wasn't a bargain, but she was worth every penny. Besides, Anne Byrne, who first used Ella, said the woman spent her money on treats for the children. How else to explain the matchbook trucks I found in my son's pockets? Um, Ella? I like it. They're happy. Me too, but you need the money. That was a summer when little parts of little bodies turned up in KFC buckets and dumpsters in the city. The summer of 1984, weeks of record heat and brown air, colonies of plague-ugly rats partied under park benches, hauling off big fines, pretzels and buns, acting bold. Ella watched the children by the playground sprinklers, then picnicked in the park when the sun was down and the grass blue, the rats less visible. I saw Ella sometimes in the north meadow, a squat teepee circled by the burn boys chasing the little Fleming girl with the squirt guns, getting sopped. For a while, we fretted over losing Ella to the Flemings. Everyone shared Ella. She had work every day if she wanted. No, Ella said, I don't leave. Then agreed to two weeks in July with the Flemings in Nantucket, even though by her own admission she couldn't swim. Ella brought out something in the mothers I knew, brought out something in me so that I, we, all of us recklessly employed someone about whom we knew next to nothing in a summer when the streets at night looked greasy and baby body parts were being found. No one who hired Ella that summer ever knew with any certainty her last name, let alone her address. Even the efficient Anne Byrne was unsure. Ella asked to be paid in cash. Anne Byrne probably did know Ella's last name, but she was gutting an apartment on 5th, taking out walls, putting in new windows, and she was living in the apartment at the same time with two boys, five and two-ish, which, when I think about it now, was clearly unsafe. The barricades were useless. The boys ducked under. I saw her younger son now toddling toward an open window. What a summer! A third and last reported bucket was found downtown, off Bowery. As with the other bodies, the head was gone. Oddly, no report of a missing baby was ever made in any borough. Maybe the children were from out of state. 
I came home later than planned one night and found Ella sitting in the summer dark, which was not so dark I couldn't see her, but I wondered why not a light was on. She sat monumentally boulder-like, but alive, hands as big as soup bowls stacked in her lap. Something else. At the end of the season, I stood on a slimy ledge of a waterfall with my younger son when he stepped out, and I grabbed his bib overalls just in time. What were we standing on? Why were we there? We were in the Berkshires, renting a house on a small, muddy lake is all I remember, that and the sound of water and its tinkly music over and over I believed in God back then, too. And nobody knows where he comes from. We've been listening to Christine Scott read from her latest story collection, Pure Hollywood. So I want to read another quote um, by Gary Lutz from Mm -hmm. his more recent essay, The Poetry of the Paragraph. Ah. In it, he says, Another category of paragraph is one through much of which runs a single dominant unifying vowel. So that's, that reminds me about what you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, an assonantal paragraph. Christine Scott is a perfectionist of this sort of paragraph. Here's a sample of hers in which the ow sound, the sound of ouch, the sound of hurt, is conspicuous and predominant. Though it doesn't make its entrance until the second sentence, every ensuing sentence except one short one offers this plangent diphthong. No matter where you travel in this paragraph, you are never far from this vowel outcry. It's as if Scott were following the sound, heeding it as she moved forward. This paragraph appears about midway in her first novel, Florida. Instead of reading it, I was just hoping maybe you'd read it, and oh. then I'm going to ask you a question about it. Sure. Okay. My father never came back, no matter what he may have promised. He took off one morning in the car we called the mouse, gray rounded fenders, a grill that looked like a snout and a decoration of chrome banding the hood for whiskers. The mouse was a harmless name for a harmless-looking car, and it killed him. Or it was the water that took his life, though he dove to it. The rolled-up windows imploded, sounding the glassy dazzle and rush of water as my father passed down and down in what might have been a lie, the story of how he died. I never did see him again. He was elsewhere buried after he was found. So I had a a curiosity, I Mm -hmm. guess, about your focus on the sentences and Lish's focus on the sentence. And Mm. then also imagining you as a teacher in Mm. a fiction workshop Mm. where I'm imagining most of your students in a fiction workshop are coming with their primary concerns at the outset being plot and Mm. characterization and the building of suspense and believability and um, story arc, narrative arc and other sort of larger structural concerns. Mm -hmm. And then I know, like from my own personal experience, because of those concerns being foregrounded in most fiction workshops, it's rare that you ever talk about the words in a sentence uh, because you just don't have the time mm-hmm. to talk about them if there's another issue that seems to be looming in terms of story. Right. Um, so given that what Lutz is describing, what Lish is describing, and what you're describing, 
this emphasis on assonance and alliteration, stressed or unstressed syllables and recursion, a lot of things that are used in poetry. I guess, how do you end up orienting students to this world that may actually even be a world that is completely unfamiliar to them, terminology and otherwise? And is that, is that orientation involve actually reading poetry um, or having your students read poetry? I don't assign it. I certainly don't assign poetry. I have, I'm, I'm teaching a course now at Columbia on short, short fiction. And, um, there are, uh, have brought in, uh, Emily Dickinson when I've been reading, uh, Lydia Davis, she has one poem about heart and head towards the end, Lydia Davis does, and it looks like a Dickinson poem, sounds like a Dickinson poem, and is, and Dickinson has, you know, a response to that as well. Um, uh, the heart asks pleasure first and then excuse. For anyway, um, so I bring poems in to show them that there's not that much difference. I, I brought in the moose uh, when, when, um, uh, I was teaching a course on uh, uh, that it was called the novel in transit, but it was real, just a lot of novels that take place either in trains or cars or boats, and the advantages and the disadvantages and so forth. But that you can uh, it, the, uh, the moose is on a bus, and and you and all that you can accomplish in in a constricted space. So there are those similarities, and then as far as reading the students. If when they hand something in, what I'm looking for is is the first sentence that I find very exciting, and uh, that's not to say I'm not trying to follow the story and what what the students uh, uh, wanted to accomplish. But I'm looking for something that's really alive, and when I find that often, I I'll take that and then talk in class about how that sentence. That sentence is the driving sentence, and and if you if you took off everything else and started there, now proceed and and then you use that sort of Lishian kind of technique. What do I have? What do I have? How can I proceed? And how can this is what something you used to say, darken and deepen it, um, uh, which usually means turn away from it. And if I turn away from that line, see uh, when you say that, I, yeah. <laughs> when you say that, I'm like, really? Is that's what it means? Because when I think of darken and deepen, I think looking deeper into, into it. That. And you're saying that to darken and deepen is to look away. Well, well, it's a way of darkening and deepening. For ex- I mean, yeah, the story that I, I I use constantly is Leonard Michael's Murderers. In the opening of uh, there, the the last sentence I can't say is 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 one that that, that he uh, turns on, but he starts on 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 death and not wanting to wait for death and and wanting to get out of there and see as much as he can. That's a very dark place. How can I darken and deepen it? Well, I could go to some place that is entirely sunlit and bright and watching the rabbi and his wife making love on a tin roof. But that's a form of darkening and deepening if you consider the fact that, that for a child, looking at somebody in, in sexual congress is a kind of death. It's, 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 it's terrifying. So it's a, darken and deepen doesn't necessarily mean bl- 
let's get more blood. Uh, it, it, it can mean complicate as well. Probably darken and deepen isn't the, I should have some darken and just change or uh, uh, um, move to another place where that dark stuff is clearly going to seep into the light and you're going to see how the two things really aren't so far apart, um, um, those two actions. So, yeah, that's how I proceed. And also sometimes in class, and particularly with fiction writers, you do, you do want to ask yourself sometimes, you really, Diane uses, Williams, for example, uses really, really ugly words I, that I cannot abide. They just, <laughs> they just, just make me shiver to see them, <laughs> but they have effect. Yeah. You know, and and that's what she's she's after. So that that when students are using words that that I think are just so, they lack any kind of of lyricism. They're just awful. It's good to point those out and to ask, what kind of an effect do you want with this? Um, do you want to just knock us over the head, which is what Diane does sometimes, or did you just use that because everybody uses it? So that again, I guess, is an attention to to language that a poet would would give to language, but that prose writers often don't. Um, well, even if you don't assign poetry necessarily mm-hmm. or assign poetry often, you you've said that when you yourself are feeling language impoverished, mm-hmm. you go to poetry. Yes, and what the poets that come back often are Lowell and mm-hmm. Dickinson mm-hmm. for you. What Talk to us about these poets for you or poetry and these poets for you and how you can get out of a stuck or flat or undynamic place with uh, your own language by going to these particular poets. You're lifted up by them. You see what they've been doing with language. They seem to have so much energy. You can, of course, continue to beat yourself up, which one does, because you you feel bereft of of energy. Um, but it can be rousing, um, and sometimes when you're writing f- fiction, you remember certain qualities of of, of, the, of the poet uh, in in a particular poem, and you look that up because it just it 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 makes you swoon, and that's sort of what you want. Um, uh, Dickinson is just very fresh, and there's so much space on the page. I, I just love the way the words sort of stand out all by themselves. Um, she she gives uh, writer permission, I think, uh, to to try out uh, something that's unusual, a word in a new place that's not been used in that particular way. And with Lowell, it's uh, just I'm just very for for some of my friends inexplicably moved uh by by what i'm hearing or the way i would imagine it would be said um i just i'm very touched i mean sometimes you go not to the poets just to 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 get an infusion of language but you just want to be moved for a change mm-hmm. um your own work doesn't move you no one else seems to be able to do that and then you read a poem and it's uh 
I, I don't know. I'm, I'm really obviously I'm at a loss for words. It's well, inspiring. We can read. We can read yeah. some of their words. Since okay. You brought a couple of your of your favorite I, poems. Well, I brought along not necessarily. I have a lot of favorites, but I. As I think I told you um, in a message, I just followed my heart in picking out some poems. And um, uh, I've recently been in this um, – well, I've, I've discovered that uh, I'm interested in um, – who I just want to cry a lot. I guess I think that's it, uh, elegies. And th- this first poem I'm going to read is by Seamus Heaney, and it's his elegy to Robert Lowell. And I uh, remember reading it obsessively when I was teaching at Syracuse. I, I would wait for the train and read it and, and because I love the beginning. Elegy. The way we are living, timorous or bold, will have been our life. Robert Lowell. The sill geranium is lit by the lamp by right by. A wind from the Irish Sea is shaking it. Here, where we all sat ten days ago with you, the master elegist and welder of English, as you swayed the talk and rode on the swaying tiller of yourself, ribbing me about my fear of water, what was not within your empery? You drank America like the heart's iron vodka, promulgating art's deliberate, peremptory love and arrogance. Your eyes saw what your hand did as you English-Russian, as you bullied out heart-hammering blank sonnets of love for Harriet and Lizzie and the briny water-breaking dolphin, your dorsal nib, gifted at last to inveigle and to plash helmsman, netsman, retiarius, that hand, warding and grooming and amphibious. 2 a.m., seaboard weather, not the proud sail of your great verse. No, you were our night fairy, thudding in a big sea, the whole craft ringing with an armorer's music, the course set willfully across the ungovernable and dangerous. And now a team of rain and the geranium tremens, a father's no shield for his child. You found the child in me when you took farewells under the full bay tree by the gate in Glamour, opulent and restorative in that as that lingering summertime, the fish dart of your eyes, risking. I'll pray for you. Um, and still staying with C, I I love this Elizabeth Bishop, North Haven, in memoriam, Robert Lowell. I can make out the rigging of a schooner a mile off. I can count the new cones on the spruce. It is so still, the pale bay wears a milky skin, the sky, no clouds except for one long carded horse's tail. The islands haven't shifted since last summer, even if I like to pretend they have. 
drifting in a dreamy sort of way, a little north, a little south, or sidewise, and that they're free within the blue frontiers of bay. This month, our favorite one is full of flowers, buttercups, red clover, purple vetch, hawkweed still burning, daisies, pied eye, bright the fragrant bedstraws, incandescent stars, and more, returned to paint the meadows with delight. The goldfinches are back, or others like them, and the white-throated sparrow's five-note song pleading and pleading brings tears to the eyes. Nature repeats herself, or almost does. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Revise, revise, revise. Years ago, you told me it was here, in 1932, you first discovered girls and learned to sail and learned to kiss. You had such fun, you said, that classic summer. Fun. It always seemed to leave you at a loss. You left North Haven anchored in its rock, afloat in mystic blue, and now... You've left for good. You can't derange or rearrange your poems again, but the sparrows can their song. The words won't change. Sad friend, you cannot change. Hmm. Um, and this last, they're all of a pair. I said I realized that they that they or they're all not of a pair, but they're they belong together. This is Robert Lowell himself in an earlier poem um, from history. Uh, no, from for for Lizzie and Harriet. It's a poem called Seals. And I, I love the beginning. If we must live again, not us. We might go into seals. We'd handle ourselves better. Able to dawdle, able to torpedo, all too at home in our three elements, ledge, water, and heaven, if man could restrain his hand. We flipper the harbor, blots and patches and oil slick, so much bluer than water we think it sky. Creature could face creature in this suit, fishers of fish, not men. Some other August, the easy seal might say, I could not sleep last night. Suddenly I could write my name. Then all seals, preternatural like us, would take direction, head north, their haven green ice in a Greenland, never grass. We've been listening to Christine Scott read poems by Heaney, Bishop, and Lowell. So if we, if we return to mm-hmm. your sentences mm-hmm. and your language and the, the lives of your sentences over time, if we look at night work to pure Hollywood. You've said that your sentences across your career have been changing yes, and that you aren't packing every sentence the way you did in the past, Right, that your style is getting simpler, that you want things to be in your words, absolutely clean and fast as it can be. So I'm curious why you've moved in this direction and what you mean by 
clean and fast. You know, I can I can go right to Robert Lowell, uh, whose poem I just finished reading, um, to explain that and and to a certain phenomenon. And you can see it actually, I think, in a, a lot of writers. In Lowell's early early poems, they are packed. They are they are difficult. Uh, in night work, the sentences are packed with absolutely everything. At the time I was writing, of course, I felt I've stored up all of this material and I'm going to use every single bit of it, uh, which is something else Gordon used to say. Just use it all up. Use it all up. It, it, will, it will replenish itself. So, yeah. But I wanted everything I could. Somebody had given me permission to indulge myself in the ways that I really enjoyed indulging myself, and that is with sound. And I wanted that. And so the, those stories are, are far more dip, difficult for people. They're elliptical. They make uh, a lot of uh, text breaks. And, um, but the sentences themselves are, are, are packed for the most part. Occasionally there will be something very short and sharp. But, um, and then as you move along, I think, as, as a writer, for a lot of writers, you – you get simpler and sparer. Your story doesn't change. The topics actually don't change, but the language does. If you, I mentioned Lydia Davis, or you look at at, at her later work, it's it's not the earlier, denser, little packed things. The head heart, for example, is is something she was not doing uh, uh, twenty years prior. So, and Lowell's work changed in the same way. The last book, Day by Day, takes up every subject he always took up. And those poems, as he said, they read like, well, he was always looking for prose, but um, they're, they're, they have a, a looseness. Uh, uh, there, there's more air between the words. Um, they're simpler. And I think almost because of their simplicity, for me, uh, I find them – it's my favorite book. It's, I find it extraordinary, um, uh, extraordinarily moving. Um, and uh, anyway, I've, I, I do think that's true for writers, and I, I've, it's, it's my ambition. Um, and, uh, and all the things we've been talking about, language, sentences, and so forth, and, and you mentioned structure and plot and story – um, even as the prose, my ambition would be to have a simpler prose. I, I, I would like to have more story. Hmm. Uh, all the things that I have not been able to do. <laughs> well, let me ask you about the language getting spare and also this desire for story. Because yeah. your story, Pure Hollywood, was going to be a novel. Mm-hmm. And you ultimately decided to make the novel into either a, a novella or a, a long, long short story, story within a collection. Yes. So it's the titular story in, in pure Hollywood. Mm-hmm. How do you know when a novel isn't working out or when this novel wasn't working out? And mm-hmm. and what about it not working made you think it worked better as something shorter and potentially sparer? And what is the process like of of distilling down <laughs> a false start of a novel into a a successful short novella? Mm. I, I I 
I wanted actually, even with with pure Hollywood, when I when I first wrote a, a little section of it, Diane Williams told me, and she is, I should add, my reader, um, uh, told me that she thought it was going to be a longer work, uh, that I I had more to do on it, which uh, so, sort of surprised me a bit, and then I. Um, and then I started to to consider that and, and attempt that, and um, and and in this uh, story, uh, pure Hollywood. Uh, the only thing I really know about uh, Hollywood uh, culture um, is is. It's just scattershot business, and I know the desert. I've I've lived in the desert before and spent time there, and that I find entirely um, uh, mesmerizing. I, I love to be there. I love to think about the the, the landscape. I, I I like it a lot, and um, but I didn't know anything else really, and um, uh, except my own fantasies about about what it would be. Uh, I had a brother and sister idea in mind. In any event, I really didn't have a lot. And even when you are working, looking back at the sentence, and and you can proceed, you're you're still at a loss as to what you want to do with uh, these people. And I'd been working for a long time, and I was at a loss. And um, the other chapters that I had managed to finish seemed very very dead. Um, and I, again, I I I, I, I rem- this is going to sound like Robert Lowell wrote the same poem in so many different books again and again in a different way. And there was some moment when I looked at Pure Hollywood and I thought, well, I can do that too. I can. Uh, this is as much as I've been able to 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 eke out with this and try to put together. And I did want my other stories to be out. They had some. They felt as if they were getting uh, old. Um, and um, I thought I, I'm not finished with one of the characters, Arnie Fine. I still find him very very interesting, but I'd like to like to think about it a little bit more to know how much of his story do I want to tell and why and where and, and so forth. And then I I thought, I can do what Robert Lowell did. There's nothing to stop me from taking this up and 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 writing some other section and eventually finding that all these pieces work together. Um, um, and do you mean writing another section being a different story within the collection? Yeah, well, within Pure Hollywood itself, taking up Pure Hollywood, taking up Arnie Fine, and taking up uh, uh, the brother and the sister, and seeing if I really want to go. You know, what what some of those uh, characters are still interesting, and the landscape is certainly still interesting. So um, that might happen. Uh, anyway, that's how I consoled myself by pulling it together and deciding. I will just put it in this um, collection. Do you have a philosophy for story collections? Are they mainly unified by time, whatever stories I've written between such and such date and such and such date? Or do you feel like you see the collection as a as a book with something else that's unifying it other than what you've written. Yes. I, well, this one with pure Hollywood, I really think, uh, 
when I say the stories are getting old, that they have a certain music. They're they're sort of all of a of of a, of a piece. Um, the the time in which I've written them, this is where I was in terms of uh, composition and sentences and so forth. And I thought they all they have the same music, and I felt that was true of of Pure Hollywood. Whether Pure Hollywood will sustain that sound or go on to be bigger as as something separate, uh, that is the long story novella whatever we're calling it, um, then maybe maybe I, I haven't lost that music or something. But in any event, I thought all these stories, they, they shared that in common. And you're not sure really where, the, where you're going to go as far as style is concerned. Well, one of, the, one of the things I notice is connective tissue across the book is this uh, recurrence of, of gardening, yeah. of marriage, mm-hmm. and of parenting. Mm-hmm. And I like what David Isaacs says about Pure Hollywood in, in the White Review. He said, Scott understands that a garden is a taming of a wilderness, just as language is a taming of reality, that the gardener, like the poet, the namer, tames the real, hems it in, weeds it, endows it with nobility. <laughs> and I suspect you weren't thinking of this as as gardens and gardeners appear in one story after the other, maybe mm. you were, but I, I was curious if your captivation with them is something you noticed after the fact or whether there was something that you were drawing forth as you wrote each of these stories, it's sort of in anticipation of them cohabitating. When you're writing stories, I don't, you don't necessarily think they're going to cohabitate, you know, they might yeah. not all stay together. And, and, um, uh, so I, I don't have the gardens in there. I think the gardens are there simply, it's sort of in the same way that the gardens are something, um, all, all writers have certain things they constantly look at or they like, and they come up again and again, no matter how we want to resist them. And in my case, gardens are often a feature, I'm, and, um, and the same could be true of houses. I'm I, I'm very interested in houses and being in different houses and considering houses. I I, I love it, and um, in the same way that I I like gardens, um, and some of the gardens are fantastical in 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 pure Hollywood. I mean the the, the garden that the um, young couple takes care of is is purely imagined um not the actions but just the 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 cliffs the water the everything so um i i I like gardens i find them very they're very inspiring um well i want to read another mm -hmm. another take on pure hollywood by david isaacs again Mm -hmm. uh and unpack it a little with you because it reminds me of what you were saying earlier that the weird move of looking away in order to deepen and darken. Mm -hmm. So he also said about your book, disorientation is the collection's guiding effect. Scott's characters are drunk, lost, amnesiac. Her prose is somehow crystal clear and opaque, like the thick surface of an oil painting that both figures a world and arrests your attention with its material texture. It looks at and it looks away from and it knows in its disorientation 
that the two are not always so easy to tell apart. To look at the world isn't always to know it. To look away from it sometimes is. I love that. And I was just curious, how <laughs> how does that take on your work strike, strike you? <laughs> it's very fancy. <laughs> Too fancy? It's wonderful. I, I'm not sure I would know how to respond. I love what you love, too. That's a wonderful idea. Well, I guess when you're writing, you're not thinking that. Yeah. Well, let me let me lean into that a little <laughs> okay. as a reader and hear your thoughts. Because okay. when thinking of the ways we can know something by looking away from it, it makes me think of an answer you gave to a question about your work often being described as elliptical. And you began your answer to this description of, of being elliptical by quoting... Eric H. Erickson, who said, quote unquote, reality, of course, is man's most powerful illusion. But while he attends to this world, it must outbalance the total enigma of being in it at all. But then you go on to say that for you, reality does not outbalance the bewildering experience of being in the world. That when you add in the scrim of memory, the most you can do to construct a world is to, to stitch together sensations of it. Yeah. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the merit or, or value in or the desire to leave a lot of things unsaid in your stories, uh, to both leave a lot of room for inference, but also, I think, also to demand the work of inference from your readers. Yes. Yes. Um if you have just enough there in a room, objects of, that are threatening, um, characters who are um, unbalanced in, in the moment, um, you don't have to actually do a lot if you have certain gestures and, and actions in, in, in a scene. And, and it's that kind of ellipses where the reader should be able to fill in whatever grotesque action um, uh, they think is 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 appropriate or would would follow um, when you when you when you try to 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 give a a a reader everything the the whole the mystery of it all is 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 dissipated um, and there is no mystery and it's just plotting everyday stuff um there, there's a there's a, a moment in Pure Hollywood where the character is going through this new place she's renting and she hasn't been able to appreciate it and she opens a drawer and shuts it and it it there there are some drawers that are so beautifully made and it's, the cabinetry is so wonderful and you feel this great solidity so it just seemed to me that if she shuts this and feels that that the reader should be able to infer a certain kind of um, well being that the character feels in that moment, but just from that gesture as opposed to somebody having to explain it. Or, um, I'm not sure I'm, sa I'm, I'm answering what, what, what you've asked, but that's the only way I can think of to yeah. answer it. Well, uh, you've said your, you've said your mm -hmm. stories, you, you want your stories to go to uncomfortable places. Mm. And I think that's one of Lish's yes. things as well. Yes. Um, and I feel, um, a lot of the discomfort in pure Hollywood for me comes from being trapped in the heads and the consciousness of a, of a certain type of 
self-reflexive upper class solipsism mm. but but not because we're trapped in that consciousness alone because we're also made aware of people of other classes on the periphery yes. of the story yes um these protagonist worlds are never engaged with directly by the people whose minds we are we are right. experiencing right um but they rather sort of are on the periphery as the and only seen for the functions that they provide yes um, Michael Silverblatt says the mixture of elegance and perversity is truly grotesque. That is very special. And I feel like that's a good description in a weird way, because I feel like, um, there's a certain queasiness in, in being with these people because you make us as the reader aware of the other mm -hmm. that these characters aren't looking at. Mm -hmm. So in a weird way, we're not looking at them mm -hmm. or, I mean, I, I'm you're creating a desire for me to look at them, mm. but you're not allowing me to, mm. in a way. Um, and this comes back to the question of what we learn by turning away from reality. Mm -hmm. But here it is, what we learn by being in the heads of people who are turning away mm. from reality, in yes. a way. So I, I, I was hoping maybe you could speak to the, your, the portrayal of extreme privilege in this light, uh, which isn't just in pure Hollywood, but also in all souls and, and prosperous friends. Yes. Yes. Well, um, I, th I think in, 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 in pure Hollywood, um, I think a lot of people, uh, who are, um, privileged, it's not as if they, I mean, they notice these people, but they can only have fantasies about them. Uh, they, they don't engage them. Um, uh, the, in pure Hollywood, the, 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 a pr father uh, uh, considers his his trainer a Chechen, and it's just wet wool coats, and and uh, they're loud people, and that's how they survived. But if you're living in this country now, you know that's how most of uh, that that's that's the way everybody's proceeding these days. Those people are this color, and they do this, and these people are that, and that is a way I think a lot of Americans, particularly Americans who are are um, removed from from uh, the the realities of middle class and poor. Uh, see them. They there's there's one moment uh, where the character um, in, again in pure Hollywood the the Mimi um, imagines the gardener and the gardener's life. And she puts them in a kitchen with a fly, with all of the, the, the whatever she can imagine they would be with, uh, even as she's done this very perverse thing of hiding from him in order to avoid paying him. She has no money, but she has obviously enjoyed a lot of privilege and so forth. He is simply employed and requires money. But... Uh, uh, it, the, the, the it is a perverse action, but I think a lot of what we do is 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 that way, um, uh, trying to accommodate in our own cosseted lives all the people who are outside of it, and usually we just we don't engage with them, and and these people, um, all the characters. Uh, well, in, in some cases, it just doesn't apply. But but uh, some of the stories, but th there is that that great remove and um, 
that's where I feel like the looking away becomes the action of knowing the way uh, that you make the reader along with the character look away and the discomfort that we feel in the looking away um, is where we learn something. It's where we, we, where the story deepens and darkens feels uh, to me in this, in this way in which you present us with the thing we're looking away, which isn't a thing. It's a person. It's a person. <laughs> but but yes. it's treated like a thing. Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. It, I mean, in their own, they, they, I think at some level when she's imagining the, 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 the family and she does end that little reverie and now how will he feed those children? It's a sort of a brief kind of moment where in, in, in the midst of her, her dining room scene that she's made for, for, the, for the gardener and his family, that she re- almost remembers her own complicity in that um, yeah. um, be, because she's, she's just been hiding from him. Um, uh, and and that, I do think that's what we do often. Um, um, well, if we return to the metaphor mm-hmm. of gardens, mm-hmm. lots of the protagonists in the collection are not working. They're either on holiday or mm-hmm. at a pool or don't have the need for a job. Right. And on the surface, they are in a way in a garden of Eden. Yes. So like the plate before we were punished with the curse of labor. Mm-hmm. And so no labor is required of them, but nevertheless, they are unhappy mm-hmm. and you refuse to tell their stories without the presence of the laborers that make their lives possible, even if the main characters don't are oblivious to the humanity of the laborers Mm -hmm. and the laborers are flat presented in a flat way because we're in the minds of the people who are perceiving them as flat. Right. So for instance, the story you mentioned, pure Hollywood, Mm -hmm. the young widow Mimi, she lives in this famous house. Mm -hmm. This house is a work of art Mm -hmm. and while fires are spreading throughout Hollywood, burning down homes, but her home isn't going to burn down mm-hmm. because the gardener is literally watering the home and wetting mm-hmm. it down. And, mm-hmm. and that juxtaposition of, of the thought-by-thought thought portrayal of the interior worries of this rich woman mm-hmm. alongside the exterior and mechanical actions of this poor gardener mm-hmm. is the source of a, a lot of the, the discomfort of mm-hmm. reading that story. And I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to borrow from David Isaacs one last time, um, him thinking about the garden as a delimited space, um, but also a delimited consciousness of the people who are living in this way. So he, he, um, David Isaacs says, part of Scott's immense skill is to show her characters in the process of roping off whilst making present and felt that which gets left out. Perspectives are limited, but the world beyond their tight boundaries, an anarchic world of wildness and wildfires, of refuse and decay, of gaudy mayhem, as one character thinks of the muted news that flickers on the flat screen in her all-purpose islanded kitchen, is always present. And I guess when I was thinking about gaudy mayhem or Mm. the muted news that flickers on the flat screen or the all-purpose islanded kitchen... Made me wonder if your stories ever begin with the horror of the never-ending news stream. Um, mm. If you ever find yourself writing a story motivated by message rather than, or by outrage mm. rather than by sound, mm. do you ever feel like you're you're looking head-on and motivated by something that you're experiencing in that way mm. um, as a impulse? 
especially when you're thinking about how you want more story in your stories. Mm. Well, all the stories in Pure Hollywood, thank heavens they were written for the most part. Uh, the, the, the collection was more or less finished when um, when the president, uh, our new president, uh, 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 was sworn in in, in 2017. Uh, and since then, um, uh, some of my friends have had uh, have have had no trouble, I think, writing. But I've had a lot of trouble because there 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 are such terrible things happening, and it's very very hard to know um, how to. I mean, most fiction, just anything that I, it seems frivolous, um, and. Um, Sort of beside the point, it, with I mean, the suffering that's going on in this country is just immeasurable, and um, and how to how to include more voices and and to 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 to, to try something new and 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 to go elsewhere in the fiction. Is is it's very difficult. Um, Do you have a, a post pure Hollywood project? Um, I have a couple. Uh, I mean, I've t- yes, a couple. I have something that's supposed to be long, but uh, as I say, I, I said it in 1957 simply because I wanted to get away from all of this. But that still puts me as as a, a white middle class woman in 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 1957, which is an even more cosseted period in many many ways. And um, so I've had a lot of difficulty with that. I've just been not very interested myself. Um, and um, I have there's too much in the air about appropriation and your right to tell this story and your right to tell that, which I've, I'm too old now to really fully understand why we can't, but apparently we can't. Uh, and and moreover, I from I feel almost presumptuous now in, in in trying to take on any of the stories of the people who are in this country. Working hard and 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 uh, who um, are solipsistic in their own way, but not in the way of of most of my characters. I mean, which is a kind of solipsism. I have to say, perversely, I'm interested in. I'm interested in very very rich people who do the stupidest, meanest, cruelest things. Why do they do that when they have such privilege? That's always been of interest to me. It's not of interest to anybody else. They can go go to hell. But I just don't understand that. Um, what, and the young people, particularly, who would be self-destructive in the face of that. I live in New York City, and, 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 and uh, I, I, I see that, um, having taught many, many people who, who are privileged and self-destructive. And it's interesting to me. Why? Um, What's interesting in this this question of appropriation, yeah. when I had Claudia Rankin on, she was making uh, the observation that when white people 
write about race, which is rarely. Yes. Often they don't at all. Yes. Um, they don't acknowledge it in their work. Yes. Um, when they do, they don't stay in their own bodies, that they often will either imagine themselves as, let's say, an African or a, uh-huh. or a uh, slave, um, and they won't acknowledge that race is also occurring when you're writing as a white person, that whiteness really isn't a default and invisible, but also um, engaged in this conversation, even when it's acting as if it's not. And in a way, I feel like your work in Pure Hollywood is engaging with race in the sense that, and class, in the ways in which these characters are, you are staying in the consciousness of these white characters. Yes. But you're also... um, ensuring that the consciousness of the people reading them are going to be troubled all the way through. I just don't feel comfortable getting into those other... Uh, I, I don't. Uh, I, as a girl, and, and, and uh, I, I lived with different families, so it's not as if I didn't have that experience uh, with, with people of other socioeconomic classes. Quite the contrary. And I usually found myself most intrigued and happiest in 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 the people who who uh, uh, worked for my some of my relatives who who did not necessarily have the time to to uh, raise me. So I've, I've had those experiences, but it still seems extraordinarily. At this time, when there's this is so much in the air, uh, somehow presumptuous. How 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 to how to how to I, I, the, 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 what's happening on the border, for example, and these these unaccompanied minors and 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 the horrors of that. Um, I can only engage that as a uh, an older white woman. Um, I and it would seem to it's it's it all seems inadequate. Uh, and though oddly like the person watering Mimi's house yes I thought of the the border and the crisis well I was like thinking, so I mean yeah. all of that sort of yeah. goes in there yeah well yes already. but 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 he's still he's just seen he never has a chance to speak we uh, there are a lot of people like that and and that and and well not a lot but there are certainly people uh, figures of that sort in the the babysitter uh, for example, not known, and uh, um, and there was something you know I really worried about that story because I did have in mind um, um, Flannery O'Connor's stories, where where these large maternal women would 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 just uh, race aside were were seen as 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 powerful figures and they might be able to bless us and um uh earlier this is becoming rather confessional when we were talking about the the abuse of a man in my in my life um when i was extricating myself from that i had a babysitter um not uh not not the the size of Ella or anything like that, but but someone who I was entirely dependent upon, 
uh, it, it was a much kind of closer relationship where we would just sit and and that scene when the Ella's in the dark and so forth. In in real life, I was sitting in the dark, and this the babysitter came in to sit with me, and uh, uh, I didn't know about her marriage, and she had never she had seen things in my house, so. She, uh, she knew what was going on, but we didn't talk about it. And we didn't talk about it, actually. In that room, we just she sat very close to me and took my hands. So she was a mother to me. But I'm not... I. So this Ella character, and at a time when things are terrible, I changed my horrible, abusive relationship into 1984 and somebody cutting off babies' heads and doing terrible things because that's what life pretty much felt like at the time. Yeah. Um, and this this woman who took care of my my children seemed uh, she was she was uh, she was my mother. My mother was not uh, able to be of any assistance at the time, and was far away. And I depended on her. Mm. So, but. Anyway, the only way I could write that story, or the only way the way it came out, was that way. Yeah. And and I know some people felt that that was the, or not some people. There's some critic about 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 Ella, uh, and I don't know. It sort of broke my heart because I, in my mind, I, you know, when you're writing these things, you have something else in mind. It doesn't necessarily come out for other people that way. Th- that a character like that can save a lot of women. <laughs> Hmm. Or a lot of us. So, could could we finish the conversation with another story? Sure. Hmm. Family man. Tonight, on the shore of a low lake in a low spot in the Kettle Moraine, black water, churchy trees, Moss sees his concave wife in urgent conversation with their daughter Grace, sly girl. Long hair slung over one shoulder, bare ear cocked close to whatever her mother is saying to her, Grace, all of a sudden turns on her heel to see him looking at her. Then Grace is standing next to him. With the slightest attention, he has charmed her away from the conversation she was having with his wife, her mother, to walk with him. She talks in a small voice without showing her teeth. Moss moves closer to hear. It may be the way she uses her tight lips, but he can't hear her and bends close to ask, has she ever been in love when his wife rushes up from behind? So Moss leaves the women and turns back to the house. The next morning, he bolts a split birch trunk together, and it bleeds. There's... A country quiet life is satisfying or should be. His daughter hoped something would happen, and it did in the shape of a man blued by symbols that crinkled when he tensed his arms. Moss watched shapes rustle on the man and saw, too, that his wrist was wreathed, royal. And he was not young. He was ready to inherit. Opalesce is a gauzy word to describe what the sky is doing. 
From the picture window, moss follows winter colors, white slate, steely skies, and yellows. He puts his hand out to the show and feels the cool glass against his palm and is steadied by the sensation. His lovely, boxed life. Snow falling outside, very pretty, while he stands inside, well and warm, entirely comfortable in comfortable shoes. The past sleds behind him. Door County, 1951, poking raw squirrel over smoky coals, washing the meal down with whiskey. Scant comforts. Even indoors, the scratchy camp blankets felt wet. He was most often cold. Early morning, hooping into Lake Michigan, then gibbering back to a tasteless breakfast of something gluey they ate with a spoon. No cream to cut his coffee. No cushions for the austere chairs on which they sat, moss, butt-numbed and dumb. 1951, the year he met his wife. He hears his name, but has no desire to know how he might be described in the future. A glass of water, a flavorless man, at best... At best, on a white tablecloth, a goblet of melted ice with the slightest curl of lemon in it. Through the blinds, a blade of sunlight cuts the glass in half and shows up dust. It was a real pleasure having you on the show today, Thank Christine. Thank you very much. It's been fun. <laughs> We're talking it. today to Christine Scott, the author of Pure Hollywood, been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. You can find more of Christine Scott's work at christinescott.com and Christine has also recorded for the bonus archive an incredible reading of an excerpt of Elizabeth Hardwick's meditations on Herman Melville this joins supplemental material by Marlon James Layli Long Soldier Carmen Maria Machado Therese Marie Myatt Sheila Hetty Forrest Gander John Keane Jen Bourbon and others and all of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>